you sing bass. Cause singing seems to help a troubled soul. One of these days, and it won't be long, I'll rejoin them in a song. This yes. is hell. Okey-doke. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. And in that abyss today, we find the possible end of wild salmon, specifically wild salmon in the Yukon River that stretches across Alaska and into Canada. Salmon that the indigenous Yupik depend upon for their lives and livelihoods, salmon that are at the center of their culture. The entire region depends upon salmon for jobs as one of the few successful businesses in the area. But with salmon now seemingly gone after two consecutive years of record low salmon counts, and now a significant drop in its substitute that had filled that gap, chum, it's not only the industry and economy that are suffering, but the Yupik whose subsistence comes from salmon. Luckily, as the Yukon crosses international borders, it gets a lot of attention from both the United States and Canada. Unfortunately, that parallel management has led to competition, which some blame as the root cause of the salmon decline. Others claim it's due to species encroachment by more predators, especially bears, foreign ghost fleets, radioactive debris from Fukushima making its way up the food chain, pollock trawlers bycatching in the Bering Sea, Then there's the possibility it's climate change and the ocean's water is simply heating up and there's not enough food for wild salmon. And then there's international salmon hatcheries and the ugly head of industrial agriculture. We'll talk about the frightening threats to salmon in Alaska, which may be a terrifying threat against all salmon globally. And we'll consider the many possible contributors to the end of not only salmon, but the life and culture of that salmon sustain in a few minutes when we speak with Anchorage Daily News reporter Zachariah Hughes, who wrote the three-part investigative series, The Last Wild Kings, A World Without Salmon. The series includes We've Never Seen This Before, Salmon Collapse Sends Alaskans on Lower Yukon Scrambling for Scarce Alternatives. The second part is The Economy of the Lower Yukon is Gone. And the final installment is Amid an unprecedented collapse in Alaska-Yukon River salmon, no one can say for certain why there are so few fish. The story was made possible in part with a grant from the Pulitzer Center's Connected Coastlines. Zachariah was a longtime reporter for Alaska Public Media and previously reported for KNOM in Nome. His writing has appeared in Rolling Stone, The Washington Post, and The LA Times. You can follow Zachariah on Twitter at Zach Hughes News, that's Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, Zach Hughes News. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alexander Jerry. Alex, it's not Richard today. Richard had been called into uh, other work, so what's new by you? Uh, you ever witness an event so extraordinary and awe-inspiring that you know it must have been God's hand piercing through the veil that we call reality? <laughs> Not recently. I was walking my dog two days ago, mm-hmm. and a hot dog dropped out of the sky. 
That's pretty hot. There were no people in the park. There Just was no a hot one. dog came flying out of the sky. Yes. Now, a skeptic might say, well, maybe the hot dog was put in a tree. But then I say to them, well, who put the hot, hot dog, dog in, in the tree? tree. Have you seen other hot dogs falling from the tree? Is this a hot just, dog tree? Let me just have one miracle, Chuck. <laughs> I want this hot dog tree or a hot dog or a burning hot dog bush if we can get that. Ooh. So I learned in the last 24 hours that friends of mine are visiting from out of town. Who knew? I would have appreciated a bigger heads up on this, but one is coming in from northern Michigan after visiting family and on their way back to where they currently live, Hong Kong. The other is coming from a far more exotic city known as Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which means following the show, I get to do the glamorous work of going home, cleaning my toilet, the rest of my bathroom, cat litter, taking out the trash, doing the recycling, dishes, laundry. Ah, the life of the rich and famous. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? I think it's a filthy bathroom and a cat litter that needs to be changed. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Actually, send it to alex at thisishell.com if you still haven't sent in your response. Alex at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Remember, Jeff Dorchin is not with us again this week as he is still celebrating the high holidays. He returns Next week, Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Zachariah on The Last Wild Kings, A World Without Salmon. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. This podcast at the same place shortly after. You will also get a discount on all of our merchandise that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. On Patreon this week, there was an article that was published in Section A of the New York Times last Saturday on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 that really, really bothered me. It's as if the Times has not learned a single lesson from 9-11. I mean, aside from their constant call for the U.S. to re-engage in Afghanistan on some level. What is up with that? I don't really understand. They haven't, it's like they haven't learned their lesson from the Afghanistan war. They haven't learned their lesson from 9-11. The article in question was headlined, How Teenagers Around the World Are Taught About 9-11, which comes with the assumption that there should be a global priority to teach the world's children everywhere about 9-11, that any lack of discussion is not only an affront to the United States, but an affront to humanity writ large. Now, I have no problem with teaching history, but why not ask students in the uh, U.S. how they're taught about 9-11-1973 and the U.S. involvement in a coup to overthrow a democratically elected leader and install a military junta in Chile? Or ask how they are taught about the U.S.-backed coups in 
1953, Guatemala in 1954, Congo in 1960, the Dominican Republic in 1961, South Vietnam in 63, Brazil in 64. Uh, or ask them how are they taught about how the U.S. was lied into wars in Vietnam, Grenada, uh, Panama, the first Gulf War, and then the invasion and occupation of Iraq under President George W. Bush, or even the Spanish-American War, how we were lied into that. It's a really, really disturbing time story revealing that after the next attack on the U.S., the media, with its red, white, and blue blinders, will again be asking, why do they hate us? So thanks for providing us with that context, 9-11, or not New York Times. We're also playing an interview from 2010 because a guest and their... had, had because a guest on this week's show brought up their work in yesterday's conversation with Christy Nabhan Warren on her book, Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. Christy writes, recent years have seen several excellent studies on the Christianization of workplaces and capitalism. American historian Bethany Morton, in her book, To Serve God in Walmart, The Making of Christian Free Enterprise, critically examines the global megacorporation and its touted and copied Christian corporate culture of capitalistic service. Nicole Kirk Wanamaker's uh, Temple, the business of religion in the iconic department store, shows how Christian morality was cultivated in a premier place of consumption and American identity and American identity and Darren E. Grem's writing The Blessings of Business, How Corporations Shaped Conservative Christianity helps us understand how evangelical Protestant Christian theologies buffeted workplace values and beliefs and consecrated success as God-inspired and divine. Christy adds, Meatpacking America, her book, joins this ever-growing literature on workplace religion and seeks to understand the role of religion at packing houses in small town and rural America. She says she joins Morton, Kirk, and Grimm in their commitment to researching and understanding the complexities and challenges of being religious and practicing religion in the United States. So on Friday's Patreon podcast, we are sharing our 2010 interview with Bethany Morton on her book, To Serve God in Walmart on Religion in the Post-Industrial Work Scape, I guess you could say, as a follow-up to our interview with Christy on the role of religion and refugees in the meatpacking industry. It's a really great interview with Bethany, and you should check it out on Friday's Patreon podcast. But again, you can only hear all of that by subscribing to This Is Hell's Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast shortly after at the same place. And that place is, again, Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Coming up, the salmon are dying in Alaska. And nobody's certain why, but they got plenty of clues. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is what lies beyond the final paywall? What lies beyond the final paywall? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of This Is Hell merchandise. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support. To see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show following our talk with Zachariah Hughes on the dying off of American salmon. Alex will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell as well as who is on next week's show. And I will be telling you what I learned about what I learned on this week's This Is Hell, and I've got an email to share with you as well. It came all the way from Tokyo, so it took a long time to get here. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell, but who knows? 
that may not be the reason or the only reason salmon are dying off at alarming rates in Alaska and the Yukon River region. Maybe it's something else that is causing or contributing to the killing of not only salmon, but the lives and livelihoods and even culture that depends upon it. Here to tell us what he learned while investigating the great Alaskan salmon die-off. Anchorage Daily News reporter Zachariah Hughes wrote the three-part investigative series, The Last Wild Kings, A World Without Salmon. Welcome to This Is Hell, Zachariah. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning to you. Good morning. It's great to have you on the show. You can follow Zachariah on Twitter at Zach Hughes News. That's Zach, Z-A-C-H, Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S News. You write, it's been a a different kind of summer in Emanac and its communities of the lower Yukon River region. There have been nowhere near the amounts of chum salmon, the river's keystone stock, needed for a commercial or even subsistence harvest. In a place where culture and commerce both come from fishing nets, something essential is missing. In Alaska, how does culture come from fishing nets? And if the salmon no longer run, what might that do to culture? Uh, well, that's a big question. Uh, one that uh, a lot of people here have been wondering for a long time. I mean, I think it's important to start out and and say that, um, you know, it, this is almost a cliche at this point, but Alaska is pretty unique uh, compared to a lot of the continental or the contiguous United States when it comes to food supply and economy. And, uh, you know, the river systems here are still largely intact compared to the lower 48. Um you know, I'm from the East Coast, which uh, had some amazing salmon rivers, um, you know, during the Revolutionary War, even the Connecticut River, not far from where I grew up, was one of the main food sources for the Continental Army in New England. Uh, when I grew up, you know, a couple of, uh, not long ago, uh, I'd never even heard of there being salmon uh, in the Connecticut River, uh, much less that, you know, anyone would go out and throw nets and provide for their families or their communities uh, from local rivers. And that really hasn't happened um, in any comparable way in Alaska. Um, Salmon is at the heart of so many different communities, economies, uh, so many different families, uh, ways of providing for themselves and putting food on the table. Uh, Alaska really never had any of the large scale uh, industrialization that a lot of the uh, Western Europe and New England had on its riverways, building dams for hydroelectric. And so as a result, uh, there's been a lot of continuity in fish returns and uh, you know the coastal alaska encompasses a number of different indigenous groups um, all the way in the southeast from the panhandle which are uh, clinkett and haida primarily also shimshian um, alaska native groups uh, up through where we're talking about the, the yukon which is primarily um, yupik and then further north into inupiaq territory all over the place people depend on the yearly return of salmon and in terms of, of culture um, you know, it, it's hard to overstate, um, whole years are planned around when the salmon return, because you have this very short window of anywhere from, you know, four to eight weeks, depending on the species, when incredible volumes of, uh, wild, healthy, natural protein returns to the waterways. And so it's not just about being on hand to catch salmon, but also having whole families around to help provide labor to, Uh, process them, to dry them, um, to treat them and cure them, to store them so that you can really maximize uh, storage. And so in Imanic, the the place where we're talking about, the place where I visited for um, this series of stories, uh, you you really have families putting away 
up to a thousand pounds of uh, of fish. Um, something that can seem sort of abstract and unimaginable, but just hundreds of big silver salmon um, per family. And that's not including the commercial harvest, which is a sort of separate animal. And we can sort of split off how uh, household use and commercial use are different. But, um, you know, it's, it's kids are out of school. Families will go to what we call here, you know, camps or fish camps. Um, which are oftentimes just sort of like very bare bones utility structures that families maintain and spend weeks or months of the summer at, you know, focused on food. And that's family time. That's a way to pass down knowledge about um, values and how to properly treat fish, how to work with a team. Uh, and so it really can't be stressed enough that, that salmon are at the core of a lot of different uh, family models, a lot of different cultural systems out here. So is the end of salmon then a threat to the more collectivist, communitarian type of lifestyle that the indigenous experience within the Yukon? I would, I would, I would just quibble a little bit with your premise at first about, you know, I, I, we, don't, we don't know yet if this is the end of salmon. And, and certainly it's a really patchy picture around Alaska. Um, the most high profile fishery, the one that, that people, if they eat salmon in, in Chicago or on the West Coast, even the East Coast, are familiar with a lot of the time is um, is sockeye from Bristol Bay, and that's this enormous fishery. In the last couple of years, it's it's one of the the few bright spots, um, and uh, the returns keep going up. Millions of you know sockeye salmon are harvested there um, and sold all over the world, and so it's sort of this confounding picture where you have this very high profile instance of salmon, you know, really healthily returning. But then all over the state, it's much more patchy. And you have places like the Yukon, which were valued partly because they were really consistent returns suddenly crashing. Um, you know, add to the confusion, there's kind of five different species here in Alaska of Pacific salmon that people target and eat. Um, and some of them are doing fine. Um, some of the species, like what we call pink salmon, which are sort of the smallest. And um, I don't think I'm speaking out of school here, but least tasty salmon, they're doing great. Um, and at the same time, um, these big prize species like king salmon are declining all over the place. And there's a bunch of theories why. Um, this is the same species that if people are familiar with the Pacific Northwest from California up to the Columbia River Basin in um, Oregon, all the way to into Seattle that have really been sort of staple harvests. And um, they're down all over the place. And so uh, it's, it's a really sort of um, up and down picture um, you know, the, the second part of your question, um, you know, it, it, it's a major threat to how people have lived their lives, how people have structured economies out here if salmon stop showing up. And there have been declines all over the place. Um, you know, if you look at the, the large scale trends, they are, they are primarily down for a lot of these species. But it's hard to get a sense of it on a year to year basis because sometimes there'll be these booms and then other times there'll be these busts. And um, that variability, I would say, is as much of a threat in the short term as the overall declines are in the long term because people just don't, they don't know. They lose practice. They have years like this on the Yukon where there's nothing to do. And so skills atrophy, equipment atrophies, commercial supply lines atrophy, and buyers look elsewhere for consistency. So I think in the short term, that's the, that's the major threat, even as we've, um, we're trying to figure out, you know, what what's happening that's causing long term declines overall. 
We'll get back to what's happening in Bristol Bay in a little bit because that is fascinating. That's part of the kind of mystery of what is happening with uh, salmon in the Yukon region. You start your writing with Cyril Jones, an indigenous man, a Yupik man, pulling up in a boat with the carcass of a moose he shot. You write, some have boated uh, hundreds of miles in search of salmon outside the region looking for salmon. Others piloted aluminum skiffs 40 miles into the open Bering Sea hoping for halibut. For Cyril Jones, the moose provided an early opportunity to put away real food with enough left to distribute some to those who might otherwise go without. Again, there's the collectivist uh, process of indigenous culture. Can those who depend on salmon for food or a wage simply move on to different areas and fish there or simply go switch to hunting moose as a larger part of their diet? Can't they just make this process just just switching to a new substitute? They did it once with going from uh, sockeye salmon to chum, so why not just move on to another source of food again? Um, The straight answer is no. (laughs) Um, And I guess the longer version of that is you know, at the core of the UPIC value system is resilience, adaptability, resourcefulness. And so people are very good at pivoting, um, but you can only pivot so many times before you kind of run out of maneuvers. And so, you know, in a, in a down year, sure, uh, moose might be a substitute, but uh, really whole households are, are built to, you know, kind of uh, go after local uh, close by salmon, um, the equipment is there, the, the knowledge is there. Um, and it's really not tenable to send people or to, to ask people to journey, you know, 130, 160 miles in these small 20 foot aluminum skiffs in open water. Um, it's dangerous for one. Um, and then fuel is just, uh, I mean, shockingly expensive in Western Alaska. Um, so, it's it takes a huge chunk out of household budgets just to be able to sort of get out there to have a chance um, and uh, you know add to that the danger and it, it really is kind of a recipe for disaster if you're if you're that becomes your primary way of doing things um, and in terms of sort of the, the pivot from salmon species um, you know it's it's really it's not so much that people gave up on chinook or king salmon um, as those numbers have sort of steadily declined it's that those were really the first opportunity. Um, sal- salmon, this is kind of a, a thing that I didn't know too much about, but salmon come back in waves and sort of the largest species return the earliest. So those are king or Chinook salmon, the, the most prized species. And they really start returning to the, the Yukon region in June. Um, and then the next really voluminous opportunity is chum salmon, which are also very good. Um, not quite as, as fatty a lot of the time as kings, not as big but still delicious. And there's just tons of them. I mean, hundreds of thousands of fish passing through at a time. Um, and so those were really sort of the, the backfill or the, the sort of supplemental um, salmon species that people went to. It wasn't an either or, it was a sort of both and um, that people had there. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the other thing is it's hard to shoot a moose. <laughs> you know, they're, they're big. Um, hunting is... Uh, the hunting is arduous for moose. They're relatively new to that region. And so it's, it's a good opportunity for protein, but it's a very different experience. And it'd be sort of like, if I told you, you know, instead of going to the grocery store where you can get all of your produce and, you know, meat and cereals and, and LaCroix, I'm not sure what your grocery basket looks like, but on one go, you know, instead you've got a, 
um, go to this butcher shop on the other side of town and they might have, uh, you know, the item that you were planning your menu around. And then you've got to go to the vegetable monger on the other side of town and, and maybe they'll have something. There's just a lot more precarity than there was before. And I, I think that's a big part of what's contributing to food insecurity. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing, you know, if a thousand moose swam through the river every year and people had an equal opportunity to go out and get it, that would be great. But, uh, the, the patchwork and the inconsistency is really one of the confounding and troubling variables in what, in what we're seeing right now. And you're saying, you also point out that, uh, moose are new to the region. Why are they new to the region? What has changed that has brought moose to the area? Sure. Yeah. This is a trend that's happening all over the high North, um, and the, there's some good science on it, not a ton of science. Um, and these are, these, are rel- these are really sparsely populated regions. And so, um, you know, part of what we know about moose and species encroachment comes from, you know, quote unquote, scientists going out and doing these big, consistent, peer-reviewed studies. But a lot of it is user observation. Um, and even a few decades, you know, two, three generations ago, people in this region of Alaska really didn't see that many moose and the big reason for that was uh climate change um as the globe is warmed the arctic and the circumpolar north everywhere from alaska to canada to siberia and russia um just a little bit of warming means that plants that moose forage on can grow just a little bit higher in the winter and poke above the snowpack and as that's happened over the last couple of decades, more moose have found enough forage to survive through the winters. And that's particularly true along riverways, which tend to be a little bit warmer than open tundra. Um, and so in an area like the Yukon, where there's a great big river um, with banks all up and down the 2,000 miles of it, um, these uh, I think the, the scientists in the paper that I looked at that reviewed this called them riparian shrub corridors along rivers, um, there's just more moose poking around as the climate warms. And so uh, people in Imanic who didn't used to see or really eat that much moose, and if they wanted one, you step to travel by boat, you know, 150, 170, 200 miles to even have a shot at where moose were poking around. Now we're suddenly in the position where there's these giant lumbering undulates just um, a couple of miles outside of their homes. And so that's relatively new and that's a, that's a blessing. But again, it's, um, it's a very different way of providing for your family and securing protein from, you know, going out with your family and uh, netting dozens of, of uh, chum salmon at a time. I think that people may have a romantic view, you know, often spread by the media of uh, living a life of subsistence. They might just view it as free and, well, maybe not easy, but they can see it as just a free way of living. But as you point out, it's really hard work. How expensive and how resource intensive is it? Because people think of it as free. It doesn't take much of an investment, maybe an investment in time, maybe an investment in labor. But how expensive and resource intensive is subsistence for these people who are living precarious lives? It's hugely expensive, even for those who are well provided for and have secure sources of income. Um, it, it's it's time consuming. It's labor intensive. It takes a lot of specialty knowledge, and it just takes a heck of a lot of money. Um, you know, I mentioned fuel costs earlier. That's a huge consideration. Um, you know, gasoline in Imanic, I think when I was there was hovering around six dollars a gallon, um, and that's that's you know, not not nearly as high as it, it could be. Um, 
fuel in a lot of these communities in rural Alaska is delivered seasonally once the uh, sea ice or the river ice breaks up. And so you have this short window in the summer when fuel tankers are able to, um, you know, move up and down the coast and ply the rivers and supply communities with the, you know, years worth of heating fuel and gasoline. And if they run out, it has to be uh, flown in as happens sometimes. And that only increases costs. So that's, that's one thing. Um, getting anything out into these communities, it's at the tail end of very elaborate supply chains. And so costs are phenomenally high. Um, and so I, I don't think people really realize, I mean, you also have to be willing to drop whatever you're doing and go where the animals are. Um, salmon don't care about, you know, what time of day it is or whether it's your lunch break or, you know, if you can get the day off from your work, they're swimming to spawn. They have one biological imperative they exist for that and schedules really have to work around there so without the salmon industry what options do alaskans have for wages for work what what do you what can they do without the salmon industry what's left for them uh, there's very few jobs in the regions that we're discussing i mean the commercial salmon industry is this you know seasonal infusion of cash for people um, it's an opportunity to go out and net and sell the catch to a commercial processor before you go out and do the same for your family. Um, but short of that, you know, the Imanic where I was, you know, is a town of, you know, about seven or 800 people and there's maybe a few dozen jobs. Um, so, you know, the wages and consistent paychecks are really hard to come by. And, and Imanic is, you know, it's, it's better positioned than most of the communities in that region. Um, there's not options. There's no McDonald's that you can walk out and, and get a, uh, you know, a steady uh, wage job. There's there's really very few options like that. And so without commercial salmon, I mean, one of the major uh, ways that capital is pumped into these communities um, is gone. Um, and a lot of the time people will uh, commercial salmon fish in the summer and that gives them enough cash to get through a couple months maybe even a year for some people if they're really well positioned. But um, short of that, there's there's very few options short of assistance, public assistance, um, either from the state and federal government or uh, from um, the tribes. And tribal entities here play a very different role than I think um, people outside of Alaska maybe understand or realize. But um, you know, tribes, particularly during the pandemic, have been really diligent about securing um, aid and relief money through uh, federal appropriations to be able to um, give people, you know, some support that they can pay their bills and uh, pay pick up groceries and and um, have gasoline in their boats to be able to go out and hunt for themselves. But you know, the short answer is there's very, very, very few. This is a very cash poor region, and there's very few opportunities uh, for people to you know, fill their coffers and be able to have money to buy basic stuff. You quote a gentleman by the name of Herman Hooch, who tells you this year, first time I had to go 30, 40 miles out on the coast to get halibut and crabs. You report others traveled beyond the lower Yukon to the southern edge of Norton Sound in the waters by Stebbins and St. Michael's. Uh, Hooch's son made the long journey, which he estimated was about 160 miles each way. Stimulus checks from the local tribe, he said it helped pay for the 500 to $600 in gas it took getting there and back. And you write how Hooch's son's fishing party returned with around 150 chum salmon and several dozen more pink salmons. The catch was shared among five families, hardly a haul by Yukon standards, with freezers unfilled. Another looming alternative is store-bought processed foods. Young people, Hooch worries, 
seem to survive on canned foods, candy, pizza, and pop, this hooch said is a liability as expensive as it is unhealthy. So a crisis of culture as well as an employment crisis and a food crisis because of the subsistence process of the indigenous people. Without harvesting fish, will indigenous Alaskans and Yukoners face a health crisis? To what extent were they already facing a health crisis before the poor salmon and chum runs? Um, Health outcomes in Western Alaska are pretty bad compared not only in state, but out of state, there's lower life expectancy. There's higher instances of, um, all kinds of kind of long-term, um, diseases and issues. And the big part of that is food. If people don't have, um, healthy opportunities for food, the store-bought alternatives, you know, again, there's, there's no whole foods or Trader Joe's and mnemonic. I mean, um, stuff that ends up on the shelves there has typically traveled a really long way. And so what you have mostly are, um, very expensive shelf stable processed alternatives. Um, it's very hard to come by fresh produce. And I remember when I lived in Western Alaska, uh, you know, if the, the weather was bad and the supply plane couldn't make its run in uh, for a couple of days, you know, there'd be no fresh produce on the grocery shelves. There's just no way to get it in. It doesn't last. So, um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I don't know, have too much to offer on that point other than to say, you know, to call this a, a food desert isn't quite the right term. It's a very different sort of supply line and supply scape out there. But um, if there's no opportunity to harvest healthy wild foods and, um, you know, kind of complex proteins and stuff like that, you know, the alternative is frozen pizza, canned soup, um, you know, not, not things that most parents want to raise their kids on. Um, but that's kind of the only game in town. And you also quote Hooch saying of the processed food, all those are not good for our bodies because when we grew up, we lived off the fish. We lived off the seal, the whale, the birds, off the river. You add that wild food is fickle. Salmon runs often boom and bust. Migrating caribou might zig instead of zag, bypassing expectant hunters. Weather might scorch or shrivel even the most dependable berry patch. To cope with such precarity, the UPIC value system has resilience, adaptability and ingenuity built into its core to what extent is that adaptability and ingenuity that value system currently being tested and what happens to a community when its value system is tested and that test fails oh gosh i don't know (laughs) i hope not to see it i hope that doesn't befall um folks on the yukon i mean that adaptability looks like cyril jones you know um being out in a berry patch with his girlfriend Berries, I should say too. I mean, this time of year in Alaska, um, you know, August is really kind of high berry season when the tundra just explodes in this riot of beautiful blueberries and cranberries and um, something called salmon berries, which are sort of like these tangy orange raspberries almost. But you know, the land provides, and if you're willing to go out and spend hours in a berry patch um, picking, you can put away gallons of you know healthy organic. Um, nutrient rich berries. And so he and his girlfriend, and I think another fellow were out doing that This one does on a nice day um, in August in Western Alaska and a moose wandered through and they were prepared and they, they took it down and they processed it and they put it away for themselves and, you know, put away enough to supply elders, you know, they were ready. They had the skills and they could jump at a moment's notice. Um, other people, you know, Herman Hooch, um, and several others were targeting beluga, which is, um, not uncommon. 
in the Yukon, beluga really follow salmon and kind of munch them out of the rivers. Um, and um, that's a species that under the Marine Mammal Protection Act, um, you know, uh, Alaska natives have a, a, a right to continue to harvest as they've done for a long time. Um, but, you know, there's pretty narrow opportunities and it's really, really hard to, you know, uh, harvest a beluga. Um, so adaptability can only take you so far. It's still, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's gambling, but you're still just sort of like waiting for opportunities. And, um, yeah, as the opportunities diminish, as they become more variable, people's skills and knowledge begin to not apply anymore. You know, if you have, um, a couple of years ago, there was, um, uh, this really bad ice year up here where the sea ice that's locked into a lot of coastal communities for, you know, the, the most of the year, um, it just sort of, it, it, it went out really quickly. The, the rivers, the lagoons in Western Alaska just broke up. It was a hot spring and the ice just disappeared, um, in, you know, a couple of days where usually it would take weeks. And so what that does to people is, um, you know, they're used to planning calendars around the returns of animals. And if there's no ice, then that means walrus, that means seals aren't going to, you know, come nearby. Um, and you, you can't go out to harvest them. There's no opportunity for it. And so adaptability is great. Being able to pivot from Chinook to Chum Salmon, and then in the down year, maybe to Pinks or to Moose is great. But if all you have is precarity and variability, um, you know, it just, you start to, you know, your luck starts to run out. There's only so many opportunities to provide. And you also point out that, you also mentioned, sorry, uh, another UPIC, Louis Imamak, who has come to rely on hunting moose to keep his family fed, as you report. In a normal summer, Imamak aims to fill two five-gallon buckets with dry fish and keep another several chums and king salmons filleted in the freezer for special occasions. In mid-August, all of the Imamak's fish racks stood bare. He hopes to put away two moose this year. And he might try to manic for she-fish in winter with a line and hook, or maybe set nets under the ice to target whitefish in the river. So are these normal seasonal hunting strategies, or are these signs of desperation by Lewis Imamek? Sure, that's a great question. Um, it's uh, These are normal activities. It is not normal for them to be the primary way that people plan on feeding themselves. Um, uh, to go after, you know, whitefish species under the ice. That's great. That's supplemental food. It is not, um, it is not the staple, you know, moose is great. Moose is healthy. It's, there's lots you can do with it. They're big animals. You can share it, but it's not the staple. And so what this year has really changed is that people sort of baseline for what's in their freezer, what they can depend on isn't there. And so there's a lot more pressure to go after all of the alternatives that would have supplemented that, um, things that would have been done, um, you know, for just some variability to have something different on your plate at a time of year, like in, in winter, when it's, you're kind of sick of eating frozen salmon or you're sick of, you know, you've kind of eaten all the best parts of the moose that you put away in your freezer. So you want something different. Now there's all this pressure, like you've got to get that because, you know, there's not going to be other fresh food, other, other viable food if you don't. 
You write that Imamac thinks it's unlikely the declines in King and Chum stocks will turn around. He kicked around theories about why. Pollock trawlers bycatching them in the Bering Sea, radioactive debris from Fukushima making its way up the food chain, encroachment by more predators, especially bears, which are new to the area and have started regularly vandalizing people's fish camps. Sure enough, not long after leaving Imamac's yard, a fellow on a four-wheeler warned not to leave the roads in town, a brown bear have been spotted by the airstrip. Did Imamac not mention climate change? He didn't. Um, or if he did, I wasn't scribbling in my notebook fast enough. I mean, it, it's it's something that, you know, out here people all kind of know and recognize and see. It might not be their go-to explanation for why a phenomenon is happening, but um, I don't think anybody here, you know, people might quibble over the reasons, but, um, you know, nobody doubts that the climate is changing. Their parents and grandparents have seen phenomenal changes in just the times they've been alive. Um, Alaska is a place that lives much closer to the land and the seasons than um, certainly the East Coast where I grew up, or I would dare to say um, Chicago. And so people just have a much more intimate um, understanding and experience of the seasons. But um, I, don't, I don't remember, I don't, I don't think um, Mr. Imamac uh, mentioned climate change, but certainly other people did. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, yeah, I found that odd, and I just was curious if if people were, you know, I think that you're the way that you describe it as being an open secret, kind of that everybody knows that everybody knows that that is one of the driving forces. You write for as long as anyone in the Yukon Delta can recall, fish came from the water. This year, the Yukon salmon run collapsed from the Bering Sea to Interior Alaska to Canada. As a result, the usual cycle is happening in reverse. The fish are arriving to the river from the sky. They come in cargo planes, frozen in bulky blocks, weighing uh, close to a ton. Workers portion them out uh, precisely, measuring the stiff salmon into boxes, then boating them to other communities in the region. The reversal is stunning. An industrial food system transposed on what has historically been one of the most abundant and consistent funnels for wild protein in the world, how much is the collapse of Yukon salmon a global food problem? How far-reaching are Yukon salmon? Will, for instance, will we notice this on supermarket shelves here in the continental U.S.? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. I haven't lived in the content in the contiguous U.S. in <laughs> quite some time. Lucky so I'm not you! Sure what's on Lucky the show. you! I'm very envious. <laughs> I was recently back in. Um, in Connecticut where I grew up for a, some, a family visit. And I, I sort of marveled in the supermarket, uh, the, the stop and shop, um, in a suburb of Connecticut that there was, uh, you know, purportedly wild Alaska salmon, um, in the, 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 you know, the fish case, um, right next to Atlantic farm salmon. Um, and was just sort of thinking, my gosh, what a, what a distance that fish has traveled, um, to be able to be here. Um, you know, I think that most consumers probably, and, and, and I don't know where the, the fish in Chicago comes from, I think most consumers probably won't notice very much because um, the volume of salmon taken from the other commercial uh, fishing um, areas, you know, is, is enough. It's consistent. Um, it's, and, and, you know, people don't really differentiate. It rarely says, you know, this chum came from, you know, uh, the Gweefluk area of the Kuskokwim River in Alaska. You can be assured it's wild. You know, there's not that level of granularity to it. People see, oh, this is sockeye. It says it's wild. It's great. Give it to me. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the 
I think the effects are sort of out. I mean, it's a, just a very disproportionate impact on the people in the Yukon if the fish don't turn up versus somebody in, you know, a Seattle fish market or Los Angeles or Tokyo, um, because there's going to be other places where fish were, were taken. Um, you know, consumers really don't see a lot of the, the returns, the, the sort of nitty gritty on the ground from where their food's coming from. Um, you know, I, I think maybe this is a good opportunity to talk about what's happening with salmon globally in terms of hatcheries, if you don't mind me kind of going off on one of the prevailing theories for what's behind the declines. No, not at all. Go ahead. I was going to get to that. But yes, this is a really very important thing, especially in, in the wake of Norway right now, building the world's largest salmon hatchery. So please go on. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, I mean, Alaskans look down their noses at, um, what's called farmed salmon. I think even derisively like Frankenfish here is how the, uh, many in the fish industry here have tried to sort of brand their, uh, economic nemesis. And there's really three tiers of salmon. There's what's called farmed fish. Um, so that would be, you know, mariculture. And this is particularly big in uh, Scandinavia where salmon are raised in pens at sea. Um, and it's, you know, they're, they're sometimes called like sea cows. You have these, these large kind of, um, uh, pens basically where the salmon live their lives in the water before they're processed. And, um, so that's one that's, that's farmed salmon. I don't really get into that in my articles because it's not something that we're, that's happening in Alaska. Um, there's wild salmon, which is the sort of uh, lauded ideal of these fish that are born naturally in rivers. They go out into the ocean for a couple of years, they come back, they're caught and processed. They're healthy. They're nature's abundance. Um, and that's great, except that there's this middle tier, um, and that's hatchery fish and hatcheries are, um, industrial operations where salmon are fertilized and then raised from smalt until they're, um, you know, large enough to be released on their own in rivers. And they go out for a couple of years, they eat, they come back and they're processed like wild fish and hatcheries have been around for centuries. There's all these experiments that were being done in Scotland and um, Northern Europe after some of the salmon rivers there declined. Um, and that's, you know, goes back to, I think the 17 or 1800s of people figured out you could release a half viable fish and it would come back maybe if the habitat was in good working order. The problem is that there's really no regulation or oversight of hatcheries in any global way. Um, except that the oceans are, you know, kind of global territory, global property. And over the last couple of decades, more and more countries in the Pacific have started to rely on hatchery fish and started hatchery programs. And the result has been dumping anywhere from five to six billion with a B um, salmon smolts into the, the, the northern Pacific from hatcheries in Russia and Japan, in South Korea, in Alaska and the Pacific Northwest. And so one of the prevailing theories about what's happening with wild salmon declines is that as all of these hatchery fish are released, they're outperforming wild stocks. And that's particularly true in years when um, sea conditions aren't very good for some of the salmon food supply. And so there's more competition at the same time as there's more fish. And it seems from the available signs like the hatchery fish, because they're raised in this kind of protected closed environment, by the time they hit the ocean, they're in better shape to be able to out-eat their wild cousins. Um, and that's one of the explanations for what's happening. It's really hard to know because nobody knows what happens in the ocean. Salmon are this kind of mysterious thing where we know a ton about their life cycles in the rivers when they're growing up, when they're getting 
figure, whether juveniles, we've studied it for centuries. There's all this knowledge, but once they hit the ocean, it's kind of a mystery. They, they go out, they eat for years and then like miraculously they return. And so nobody is really sure that's kind of the emerging area of research of what's happening out in the oceans. Um, so one of the theories about the Yukon and what's happening right now, and it's only a theory, we have no certainty. And that's one of the more troubling things for a lot of people there is the lack of certitude, um, is that, you know, maybe these billions of fish that are pumping into the food system um, in a warming ocean, the food supply is steadily diminishing. And these industrial hatchery fish from all over the, the kind of Pacific Rim are just out eating species like chum, like Chinooks. And that, you know, when those hatchery fish get ready to spawn, they're returning to their hatchery streams in South Korea and Japan and Russia and parts of Alaska where they have them. Um, the Yukon doesn't have any hatcheries. So, so those fish are going elsewhere. Um, so that's one of the kind of dominant, or I would say it's, it's probably the, the emerging theory for some of the salmon declines for species. So how much is that driven by human demand? Uh, do we, is it our complicity within the system? Is it us wanting more and more and more salmon that is driving the industry? You know, one of the papers that first discussed this phenomenon and really studied it um, was titled The Road to Extinction is Paved with Good Intentions. And I, you know, that paper is from 2001. It's 20 years old, but I think that kind of hits the nail on the head. Um, you know, people want healthy food. It doesn't matter if you're in Russia, if you're in Alaska, if you're in South Korea, you know, people want fresh, uh, healthy food, you know, from the ocean or from the land. That's what all of us want. I think we'd all say we'd probably prefer to eat a slab of, um, you know, a fresh salmon fillet over, you know, canned uh, salmon that's been sitting on the shelf for who can say how long. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we've, we're starting to steadily replace this amazing natural phenomenon, you know, this, this self-sustained system where these fish without being told what to do with no human intervention, they, they just breed, they go out into the water, they come back in a couple of years. Um, and they're there and they're there in abundance. They're there, you know, you, you, part of the way that fisheries rivers are managed is that, you know, scientists say, this is how many we need for the population to be stable. If we have more than that, they'll out eat each other. They'll die. There'll be this kind of overage that's not productive. And so that's how, you know, take that surplus. That's, that's yours. That's not going to, um, meaningfully differentiate or meaningfully change uh, what's happening with this return. And in place of that sort of miraculous self-contained system, we've added these operations that are pumping, hopefully, abundance into the oceans. But it seems to be turning out that, you know, that that abundance um, is a little bit more complicated than we thought. That maybe there's more salmon in some places, but they're the inferior species. Um, there's an ecological cost to hatcheries because the salmon return to more or less the same place in a river as they were released um, and wild salmon by comparison, you know, get all up into the river system, all of the sloughs and tributaries and little places um, where the river goes, the salmon return to, because that's where they're from. Um, and so when they spawn and they die, there's all this nutrients that seeds the river systems. It ends up all over the place um, and really fertilizing, not just the main river stem, but all the lands around all the places where bears 
or eagles dragged salmon off and dropped them, dropped the half-eaten carcasses in the tundra. There's all this fertilization that happens to vast river systems that you don't have. The hatcheries where the fish are returning more or less to the same place. And so I think there's a real gap in how, um, you know, international hatcheries management is um, overseen and some of the broader ecological trends that um, might be afoot now that we're a couple of decades into large international industrial hatchery operations. So you write that across most of Alaska, not only is the number of salmon diminishing, but the fish coming back are smaller, younger, and stocked with less fat. The one high-profile exception is in Bristol Bay, where the commercial fleet keeps landing record-breaking harvests of sockeye. Most fisheries go up and down, but the runs there keep nudging upward. One hypothesis for this, uh, stated by Dan Bergstrom, who was a fisheries manager in western Alaska for 30 years before retiring from fish and game, he said that it is climate change. Sockeye spend more time than most salmon species maturing in inland lakes, and climate warming could be helping survival rates among the fry before they head into the perilous expanse of the ocean. But there's another major change in the Bering Sea that Bergstrom uh, also uh, sees, and others uh, like a uh, gentleman by the name of Schultheis also point to this potential culprit, and that being hatcheries. So are hatcheries then not only not sustainable, but a threat to wild salmon more generally, and on top of that, a threat to nature and the possibility for people to actually live in a subsistence way in the Yukon? Um, that's the multi-million dollar question. <laughs> um, are they sustainable? Probably. Um, but what does sustainability mean? Does it mean sustainability for, you know, a commercial industry or does it mean sustainability for a cultural system and an ecology? I don't, you know, I don't, there's trade-offs. Um, and you know, I think, um, one of the things that we don't talk I, I find that oftentimes climate change discussions revolve around loss and, uh, that's certainly true, but it's a more nuanced patchwork where there's inevitably there's, you know, there are some winners. And right now it seems like maybe climate change is making a winner out of Bristol Bay sockeye because that's a species that hangs out in these lakes that are a little bit warmer and more nutrient dense as a result of thawing earlier and getting more heat pumped into them. And so you know, this one species of fish for whom the circumstances, you know, probably pretty good in the same way as climate change is making it possible for moose to live in a more, you know, northerly environment right now. So there's, there's just always trade-offs, but, um, you know, I think in the shorter and, and more middle term, it's hugely disruptive for people on the Yukon, uh, hugely disruptive for people on most of the major river systems and commercial fisheries in Western and Southeastern Alaska. Um, Bristol Bay's, you know, one example where it's, that's not the case where it's working out pretty well for the commercial fishing fleet and the region, but you know, it's that variability and that precarity, um, that really right now, I think has a lot of people, um, alarmed about, you know, what are the next few years or the next few decades look like? The CARES Act at least provided a band-aid during the last couple of years of uh, very low salmon counts. Um, you know, this is a really depressing scene of flying frozen salmon into an area that once produced salmon. Can airlifts save Yupik culture? No. And so without these airlifts, let's say in the winter when this is impossible to do anyway, and without the CARES Act supplemental money, 
how much of a threat is there of a, an immediate food crisis, like only in a month or two this winter? You know, Jack Schultheis, who is one of the people that I interview in the story and is, knows the region really well and has worked out there for decades and has great relationships, you know, he put it, you know, people aren't starving yet. Um, and I don't, I don't think you're not, you're not, I don't think that's the risk at this point is, you know, destitute people sort of, um, you know, famine is not the immediate risk, but it's, you know, it's spending all of your money at the store for store-bought goods that, you know, nobody is happiest. That's nobody's first choice. Um, it's, you know, families without anything to do, young people without any opportunities for work or learning how to provide for themselves. Um, it's a system where, you know, people are living off of government support and, you know, it's just barely eking out, um, you know, uh, uh, surviving, it's not living, it's not thriving. Um, and I think the opportunity to thrive is really one of the, the things that's, that's most at risk if a food system like this collapses and people have to, um, depend on, um, you know, aid and support and charity. Um, instead of being able to uh, rely on themselves as they've always done. You mentioned the Quick Pack Salmon Processing Campus, and you write how you saw a crane driving piles for a new dock jutting from shore into the waters of Quijack, a short bypass off the Yukon's main stem. A new dock? Is it needed considering fishing is not doing well? What does it reveal to you about priorities when a new dock is being put in while the uh, you know fishing industry is disappearing? Not really sure. I didn't ask too much about the dock. I, I think that that may have been sort of shoring up things. Um, the whole Quick Pack facility, um, and I, I should I should just sort of, Quick Pack is the commercial fishing operation that is based in Amonic, and so they have this fleet of boats. They have all this equipment for processing and storing fish. And I think that um, I, I can't say with one hundred percent certainty, but I think that dock project was sort of you know shoring up operations, and that would have been planned years in advance and field work was basically being completed. I don't, it's not, I don't think it's a case of kind of whistling past the graveyard. Um, I think it's just like, Garrett, you know, this is the dock that we planned five years ago and <laughs> we're not fishing. So we might as well sort of focus on this. Um, I do think that, you know, the, maybe what, what is, um, you know, at risk there is that it takes years to build up these commercial fishing operations to have the plants, the equipment, the supply chains, the relationships with buyers, and a couple of years of down or non-existent salmon returns mean that all of that capacity really atrophies and is at risk of going away. It, it takes people whole careers to build up, um, you know, the opportunity to uh, bring wild food to market from a place like Imonic, which is so far away from the supermarkets where a lot of that salmon is showing up for consumers. Um, and you know, there's, there's a risk that all of that work and all of that knowledge and all of that, that effort, all of that coordinating to drive piles, um, you know, for a new dock into a, a river bypass in the Yukon in Alaska, you know, that it might all be for naught if the fish stop showing up. You also point out that the problems arise when hatchery fish are dumped into the same food systems, as you were saying earlier, the same food systems as wild stocks, so that an increased biomass of hungry young salmon is competing for the same amount of nutrients. Is this an easily fixable problem? Can they simply stop dumping the hatchery salmon where the wild salmon are and problem solved? I don't know. Um, and I, I think there'd be a lot of uh, pretty irate, um, you know, commercial um, 
you know, commercial fishing operations um, in other countries and even in parts of Alaska, if their fish stop showing up. Um, you know, the longer there are hatcheries, the longer there's systems there that depend on them, um, you know, for people's livelihoods, for supermarket demand. Um, so I, I don't know what happens if you turned off the hatchery um, flows around. I don't, I don't think you could. I don't think you could go to Russia, Japan, South Korea, Alaska, the Pacific Northwest. And, um, and we're not even getting into what's happening in the Atlantic because I just don't even know um, their salmon system there. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that there's, there's no coordinating body. There's no, uh, you know, massive sort of oversight or regulatory thing that could even um, try that experiment. We have been speaking with Anchorage Daily News reporter Zachariah Hughes, who wrote the three-part investigative series, The Last Wild Kings, A World Without Salmon. You can follow Zachariah on Twitter at Zach Hughes News. One last question for you, Zachariah. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So we've been discussing the p- potential for uh, climate change playing a role in the salmon die-off. We've been talking about international hatcheries as playing a role in the salmon die-off. What I enjoy about your article the most is that it doesn't point to one simple answer. It points to many factors playing contributing roles in the salmon die-off. So my question to you, Zachariah, is it not just climate change, not just international hatcheries, is the bigger overarching cause for the salmon die-off in Alaska capitalism? Oh, gosh. I was worried you were going to ask me a harder question, like, uh, you know, who should the next host of Jeopardy be or something? Um, <laughs> Is it capitalism? Um, I hope capitalism isn't hosting the next season of Jeopardy. That would be horrible. Well, I just, I don't, the logistics seem pretty challenging and capitalism's got a lot of work elsewhere that it's doing. So, um, you know, it's, I mean, how could it not be a contributing factor? Um, I don't mean to sort of sidestep the answer. I I think a lot of the, um, you know, it's where you want to put blame. Um, And, uh, you know, is climate change being driven by a capitalist production system that really doesn't have a sustainable ecological framework built into it? Sure. But, you know, capitalism is also one of the mechanisms by which a commercial industry in a place like the Yukon has allowed for people to have enough cash to practice a collectivist, um, you know, indigenous model of sustainably providing for their families. Like I, it's, I, I don't, I have trouble, you know, blaming any sort of macro systems and I, because there's so much interplay and there's so much nuance on the ground. So what I care about in this reporting is, you know, will Alaskans be able to provide for themselves in a sustainably minded way with uh, wild and, um, you know, natural salmon returning to their rivers? Can they be stewards of their own destinies when it comes to, um, you know, uh, providing for them, their families, providing for themselves and being able to uh, practice culture on their own terms. That's what I care about. And, and if that happens under, you know, a capitalist um, commercial fish buying operation, or that happens under, you know, full socialism or communism, I don't, I don't really have a, a take because that's just so far from the reality on the ground that I've observed. So that's my, my answer to 
this week's question from hell and um, i'm a solid lavar burton fan on the on the jeopardy question <laughs> i'm still going with capitalism i can't wait because it's going to be really really tough to work around their schedule thank you so much zachariah i really appreciate it this is fantastic writing it's always enjoyable to talk to somebody about an investigative journalism piece i really appreciate it there not a lot of these things are being done anymore because the budgets at media outlets so i really appreciate your work thank you so much for being on our show well thank you for having me i really appreciate your attention and i i i uh, have uh friends in the chicagoland area so i i'm tickled and i hope that they they would never uh, know or care about anything salmon related so maybe this will cross the transom for them and um i just want to also say thank you to my editors at the anchorage daily news and to the pulitzer center for you know providing the resources to do this because it is it's resource intensive and it takes time um and I, I just got a lot of support and it couldn't have happened without that and also you know that people in a place like Amonic would deal with this uh you know out of town or poking around their fish racks and uh saunas and you know asking about the moose they were sharing around on uh their four-wheelers so um people were really generous and i feel a lot of gratitude for that That's really awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show and uh, enjoy the rest of your week. You too. Take care. Take care. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell if that conversation with Zachariah on the potential end of salmon made you mad or sad, anxious or enlightened or helped you realize that yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your support alex please remind the listening audience what is this week's question from hell and tell them how our listeners are responding so far what lies beyond the final paywall what lies beyond the final paywall humbug says the first paywall again the paywalls will continue until morale improves okay big big burb <laughs> who uh, goes by actually the better handle of damn how did he get at cheeseburgers on twitter that's amazing uh, says a car declination notice <laughs> uh, nom de plume says your mom better win this one <laughs> what lies beyond the final paywall marks price says chuck's weed <laughs> ltrct says full archive of articles written by the state department raytheon execs and exiled cult leaders Nicole M says, the real final paywall is all the passwords I made along the way. (laughs) Graceful Carl hath declared, said the architect from the Matrix, ready to explain absolutely nothing. (laughs) And tiny, tiny kitty cat says, ads as far as the eye can see. That's all on Twitter. Uh, Then via Facebook, answering the question, what lies beyond the final paywall? Braden S says, L. Ron Hubbard's spaceship. (laughs) Mika D says, Phil Donahue. It was him all along. Sam W. says, a crappy opinion piece about how the homeless are destroying our cities. Joel G. says, Al Capone's real vaults. Mason W., the real identity of Q. (laughs) Neil C. says, Def Leppard's hysteria. (laughs) Thank you, Brad R. (laughs) Jessica B. says, Marcel the Shell. Jack B. says... Marcel the Shell, familiar? No. Okay. That's all. Should I be? No. Jack B says, discounted merch. <laughs> Ladio says, Walt Disney's nasal tweezings in perfect vacuum at absolute zero. Marco G says, a Garfield mug. Barrett M says, eternal damnation or salvation. I can't remember which. What lies beyond the final paywall? Luke H says, sweet, sweet oblivion. <laughs> Philip A says, all the context you need in order to criticize Glenn Greenwald in good faith. Evan H says, Texas. A couple more. What lies beyond the final paywall? 
via DM, email, etc. Paul H. sent us a picture of the DeMonte toilet roll holder. I don't get that one either. Looks pretty nice, though. It's a really nice toilet roll holder. Uh, Adam B. says, The Mushroom Kingdom. And finally, Hypocrite Reader, our friends Hypocrite Reader, say, An autographed picture of recently deceased Cincinnati Bengals coach Sam White <laughs> made out to Chuck. Hey, I think that that story must have really struck a chord with the folks at Hypocrite Reader. Yeah, it did. And, uh, you know, I'm still looking for that thing. Still looking for it. I know it's around here somewhere. I just can't decide if it's here at my home. I don't know where it is. <sighs> the answers I like the most were Braden S. saying L. Ron Hubbard Spaceship, which is awesome. If you've ever been to a Church of Scientology building, they're really fantastic. There's always an office with L. Ron Hubbard's name on the door, like on opaque glass. And then uh, there, inside there will be a fake office, like set up like a, a set. And his glasses will be on the table. And there's a sweater on the back of a chair. So it looks like L. Ron Hubbard just stepped out. So I imagine that L. Ron Hubbard's spaceship looks a lot like that office. I liked Sam W.'s uh, answer, a crappy opinion piece about how the homeless are destroying our cities. That's what he finds behind the final paywall. Joel G. saying Al Capone's real vaults. I guess I shouldn't really like that. That's just ridiculous. Uh, Mason W. saying the real identity of Q. Neil C. saying Def Leppard's hysteria. Thank you, Brad R. And Evan H. saying Texas. Oh, and Aaron D. saying trillions in NFTs. That makes this uh, week's winner. Well, I really like Neil's callback to Monday's email from last week's winner, Brad R. Def Leppard's Hysteria. I absolutely enjoy the brevity of Aaron H.'s answer to this week's question from hell. What lies beyond the final paywall? Texas. <laughs> Congratulations, Evan. Send us your mailing address and tell us what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want as your prize for winning this week's question from hell. And we'll get it in the mail to you immediately. My answer to this week's question from hell... What lies beyond the final paywall? Geez, I hope it's my last cough. Uh, there is nothing behind and beyond the final paywall. It's an empty space. It's the absence of everything. A void where you become nothing and everything. And I hear it's not so bad. Thanks to everyone for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We got an email sent to Chuck at this is all the way from Tokyo from Chris, who writes, Dear Chuck, as I write this, I'm relatively happy. I'm not connected to the extracorporeal membrane oxygenation machine. I can smell my coffee and my friend just had a birthday, which is why I'm ordering two This Is Hell t-shirts and would like to send you eight bucks a month on Patreon for the next little while. That's very generous of you, Chris. Thanks. Chris continues, I was going to write an eloquent yet scathing critique of the Alberta government's handling of, well, everything. Japan's lack of democratic participation, read Tokyo University Professor Emeritus Dr. Kiyoshi Kurokawa's Fukushima nuclear accident report to understand why, and my fear of Canada's become, uh, upcoming election results, but I am tired. Coffee just isn't doing its thing today. So please, if you could simply give a quick shout out to Shannon, wish him a belated happy birthday, and know that there are at least two of us on this godforsaken archipelago 
that really enjoy your work. For example, Suzanne Schneider's discussion of neoliberal jihad was an absolute home run. Next time you're in Tokyo, sushi's on me. Can you ship two large-sized men's t-shirts to Japan? Also, I'd like to become a one-year Patreon patron at four bucks a month. Chris. Chris, all you have to do is to go to thisishell.com. You click on support. You select the t-shirts you want. You choose the size and give us your mailing address and other necessary details. And the shirts are on the way. As for subscribing to Patreon, just go to patreon.com slash thisishell. And now I want to know more about Dr. Kiyoshi Kurakawa's Fukushima nuclear accident report. And I agree, Chris, Suzanne Schneider, author of The Apocalypse and the End of History, was not only a home run on Monday's show, she blew my freaking mind. Oh, one other thing. Happy birthday, Shannon. Alex, do we have anyone scheduled for next week's shows? Uh, yeah, if you were wondering, when's this is hell going to get back to talking about pearls after our interview <laughs> with hypocrite, hypocrite readers, uh, Tamara Fernando, we're going to be talking on Monday with Molly Warsh about her book, awesome. American Baroque Pearls and the Nature of Empire, 1492 to 1700. I'm real excited for this uh, one. Continuation of our deep dive on pearls. Yeah, I'm Pretty still good waiting pun on there, huh? <laughs> still, Yeah, geez. <laughs> uh, still waiting on uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, but we'll have something booked pretty quick. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is Suero, the supposedly best Mexican hangover cure, a limonada, not a lemonade, a limeade, made of mineral water and instead of sugar, you use salt. Thanks to this week's guest, including our first guest this week, historian Suzanne Summer, author of the uh, Schneider. Suzanne Schneider. I said Summer. Is that crazy? Historian Suzanne Schneider is author of The Apocalypse and the End of History. Uh, like Chris was saying, Suzanne was fantastic on the first show of this week. What really struck me about her writing, and I don't know if this was discussed enough, is something I've been thinking about for decades, and that is, you know, Suzanne, how she points out that what is known by the far right, and that is that capitalism and democracy live in contradiction and competition with one another. That is, capitalism is antithetical to democracy. The real democracy cannot exist within the market. And the right knows that at some point in time, we're going to be given a choice between the two. And apparently, the time to choose is now. Fox News is already asking their viewers to make that choice under the dog whistle on their culture war. That culture war is actually a, a call to choose between capitalism and democracy, between the pursuit of fascism or equality. And it looks like we all better start choosing now because the far right has made up their mind as to which future they want. Thanks to yesterday's guest, ethnographer of religion and editor, Christy Nabhan Warren, author of Meat Packing America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland. For me, at least, Christy was a reminder of stereotypes we hold when it comes to white Christians in rural areas and any belief we have that they are untouched by the larger re reconsiderations of race and racism that have occurred over the past several years since the movement for black lives began. It always uh, struck me that the weekly newspaper of the small town where we vacationed every year in northern Michigan, a rural community dominated by white Christians, would always feature all of the good deeds locals were doing to help out one another during the height of the pandemic last year, only to find letters to the editor filled with the hate from their neighbors. What was it that these kind and charitable people, proud of how they collectively help each other during a crisis, could then turn around and embrace hate-filled rhetoric in clear opposition to help out anyone? Unless that help is politically exploitable to get a few more vo votes and maybe win an election, then, then it's okay. 
Christie also reminded me that while all of the talk on the campaign trail is always about what can be done in those Rust Belt cities where manufacturing has disappeared, the ongoing crisis in farming has just as much of an impact on who votes for who. It's, it's not only manufacturing that has disappeared, it's the small farmer, too, who now must deal with a playing field that is tilted to Big Ag's advantage. And thanks to today's guest, Anchorage Daily News uh, reporter Zachariah Hughes, who wrote the three-part investigation into the historic die-off of Alaskan salmon. And I always I assumed that Zachariah's writing would be about climate change and how it was killing all the salmon. What I didn't realize is that disastrous climate change may be only one contributor to a massive system of collapse caused by many factors, including global warming, but not limited to it. That climate change is only one of several disasters humans are currently inflicting on the planet. And for me, it's important that I remember that nothing has a simple answer, but that, that, yes, climate change is setting our planet on fire, but that fire is being fueled by many other things, including capitalism. Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Egon Sheely and Jess Lipka for running the board this week. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for This Week in Rotten History. Jeff Dorchin returns next week. Talk to you to, uh, on Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is how when I will be dissecting a myopic New York Times article about how the world's teenagers are learning about 9-11 and we'll be sharing a 2010 interview with historian Bethany Morton on her book To Serve God and Walmart, The Making of Christian Free Enterprise. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards this guy, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. Hey, come to the bar tonight. I'm making brownies. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>